Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. In the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, which is the next section that we're up to in our series, there's this amazing story of a Roman family named Cornelius who became followers of Jesus. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Well, one day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What well, what is it, Lord? he asked. Well, the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Well, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, this happened three times, and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. So while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, and they stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, Three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Well, Peter went down and he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Well, the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and a God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Well, then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I, I'm only a man myself. And while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? 
And Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Well, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the, the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God anointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Well, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard him speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. There are a number of things that this passage teaches us about Christian faith. Some of them are fairly obvious. Others might require a little more homework and background understanding. For instance, one of the most significant things about this passage is that it tells the story of how the gospel jumped the ethnic fence. The Roman soldier Cornelius and his household, they're actually the first non-Jews that we know of to be converted to Christianity. Jesus had uh, earlier told his disciples, of course, that they would proclaim the good news to all people in the world, regardless of race and ethnicity. Well, this passage actually marks the beginning of that spread outside the household of Judaism. Up until this point, though, Christianity had been a sect within the Jewish faith. Then, Then another point to note from this passage is how it challenges our sense of prejudice about other people and who it is that we choose to associate with. So reading these verses with 20 centuries of Christian history under our belt, it's it's easy to gloss over some of the turmoil that that Peter must have gone through, actually, in being part of Cornelius' conversion. Peter would have grown up with the understanding that Jews don't relate with non-Jews, least of all accept hospitality from them. 
mean, that, that, that's actually the point of the, the vision that Peter saw of a, a blanket of food that was lowered to him three times. I mean, there were strict rules of association and foods that were allowed to be eaten by Jews. And well, there were certain other foods that Gentiles liked to eat that they were regarded as unclean or impure. I mean, if you ate those foods, the Jews believed you'd defile yourself. So racial prejudice on the part of the Jews was actually quite severe that they regarded all other races as, well, inferior and depraved. They had a special privilege themselves and uh, God's scheme of things as his chosen race. And well, the, the only reason really God created the Gentile races, they believed, was to provide fuel for the fires of hell. But, but here, God was sending Peter to a Gentile home. Uh, Peter was being specifically directed by God to show love and friendship to the very people that he had grown up despising and resenting. He was to accept their hospitality, to eat their food, to share with them his knowledge of Jesus. And, well, this actually represented a major paradigm shift. In other words, relationship with Christ challenged and demolished racial prejudice. And there's a lesson for us all in this regard as well. In the kingdom of God, there is to be no place for ethnic superiority or prejudice. This was a very radical new idea for the initial Jewish Christians. I mean, followers of Jesus, they actually experience now a change in their worldview, the way they view people and races of this world, that that changes when they become connected with Jesus. I love the way the Apostle Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, when he said, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, when we, we, we adopt, we, we accept God's perspective on people and their value or their worth. And, well, God loves and sees the potential in all men and women equally. No favorites. So th this passage actually represents the beginning of a new mindset amongst Christ followers. Then another thing worth noting from this passage is the extraordinary lengths that God went to to save Cornelius and his household. It's uh, another example of how God orchestrated a set of circumstances and series of events in order for someone to come to faith. I mean, God sent an angel to Cornelius, instructing him to send for Peter. Then at just the moment that the messengers were arriving at, at the house where Peter was staying, Peter fell into a trance and God dealt with the issue of racial prejudice. Then God told Peter to go with the men who'd come from Caesarea and then when Peter was sharing his story with Cornelius and his family, well, God kind of just took over and the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were all converted. So, so once again, we have to say that the star of this story was well, not actually Peter or Cornelius, but the Holy Spirit who orchestrated the whole thing from behind the scenes. God was reaching into the life of Cornelius and his household and he was saving them. Now, now, whether or not we fully recognize this, that, that actually is your experience as well as mine. 
We, we may well look back to a time when we had a spiritual hunger and we started thinking about the meaning and purpose of life and where God fitted into it all, but we, we look back maybe to a day when we might have prayed and dedicated our life to the Lord and invited Jesus to become our, our Lord and Saviour. But, but God can actually look back even further to the situations in our life where Well, he exposed us to people or circumstances that opened our minds to spiritual truth. God sent people across our path to witness to us, to demonstrate aspects of God's character and love. Any credit for our becoming a Christian, well, that really belongs to God more than it does to us. But there's another angle in this passage that, well, I I want us to focus on. Because it illustrates, I think, what it might mean for you and I to be a servant of the Lord and directed by the Holy Spirit. And I want us to note the way that Peter, who appears typical of a number of believers mentioned in the book of Acts, receives instructions or specific direction from the Holy Spirit and then acts upon it. There are at least four specific things that that happened to Peter in this passage by which God directed him. Verse 10, as we've noted, when he was praying on the roof of the house that belonged to Simon the Tanner, Peter fell into a trance and seemingly this was was more than just a, a nap that Peter was taking or perhaps falling asleep while he was praying. It was actually a state that God put him into. Then in verse 11, in this trance-like state, Peter saw a vision. A picture unfolded in front of him about food and hospitality that was now acceptable for him to eat and enjoy. In verse 13 and again in verse 15, it says that a voice spoke to Peter in the vision. Then in verse 19, it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter about going with the men from Caesarea. Now, Peter was clearly spoken to or directed by God to follow a particular course of action. So here's the question I want us to consider. How does the, the model of being Christian that Peter represents compare with our experience today? I mean, is what we read here a unique event in the life of an extra special Christ follower? Or is what happened to Peter actually something that we might possibly experience in our day and age as well? Because Peter is not the only example in Acts where this kind of thing happened. Back in chapter 8, Philip, the evangelist, received a specific revelation from God that he was to begin traveling on the road that went from Jerusalem down to Gaza. He didn't necessarily know why he was to do so, but he uh, obeyed the leading of the Spirit, only to find that God had actually set up an appointment with an Ethiopian government official who was traveling on that road to whom Peter was able to share his faith. And then having fulfilled that particular assignment and baptized the Ethiopian as a new convert, Philip, it says, suddenly found himself sharing his faith in the town of Azotus. Then the next chapter, in Acts chapter 9, we have another example. The Holy Spirit then gave a very clear direction to a man called Ananias, who lived in the town of Damascus, to go and minister to Saul, 
who had been blinded by a bright light on the Damascus Road. And the text says that Ananias saw a vision, even down to the street address. He obeyed the instruction, and well, the Apostle Paul, as we came to know him, was converted. So the concept of Christ following that's modelled several times in the book of Acts describes a sense of connection and communication with God that, that is remarkably directive. Christian faith is described as more than just a theological belief system that a person adopts or maybe a moral code to live by. It's more, more tangible than just an entry ticket into heaven when we die. It's actually more like a dynamic experience of interaction and leading by the Holy Spirit. The affairs of the church and its ministries were, were clearly orchestrated and directed. Perhaps a little bit like pieces on a celestial chessboard. God moves his people in specific ways and places to achieve his divine purpose. So what are we to make of this? How does this particular paradigm or perception of following Jesus compare with our experience in our era of the church? Or to put that another way, how transcendent and dynamic is our perception of the God that we love and serve? Does our understanding of God include the possibility that he might give us instruction or leading like he gave to Peter? Or, well, have we reduced the voice of God to merely historical data and stories recorded in the Bible from thousands of years ago? Now, I, I, I'm aware that in raising questions like this, I'm, I'm possibly opening a can of worms. I mean, the, the subject of how God speaks to or, or leads his people is a large one, and you know, perhaps it's fraught with all kinds of dangers. As the saying goes, uh, why is it when I talk to God, that's called prayer, but when God talks to me, that's called schizophrenia? <laughs> Many people throughout the ages claim that God spoke to them, when in actual fact, it wasn't God at all. It was merely their emotions or imagination or perhaps even a diagnosable mental illness. Or perhaps in response to that, that there are now many Christians who've actually overreacted to false or counterfeit supposed revelations and well, they've dismissed them all as a load of nonsense. But if we claim to be people who take the Bible seriously, what do we do with passages like this one that describe overt revelation and directing? Because quite apparently, people like Peter or Philip or Ananias and a heap of others clearly did hear God speak to them and when they acted on the direction that God gave them, well, some absolutely amazing things happened. People were saved. Revivals and people movements broke out. How, how does the Holy Spirit speak to us in our era of the church? I mean, just today we've laid hands upon and commissioned Campbell to be a missionary with WEC based in Germany. Now, Campbell believes that this is a call and instruction that God has given to him to which he's been obedient. Uh, in a few weeks' time, Liz and I will follow a sense of the Lord's leading to us. We're stepping down from being the pastor of this church and entering into a new international role with the World Evangelical Alliance. 
So, so how do we know when God is telling us to do something and it's not just our imagination? Well, maybe the first thing to say is that it doesn't happen every day. It, it uh, would be easier to get the wrong impression from a passage like this one that uh, for men like, like Peter, you know, trances and visions and angelic visitations were an everyday occurrence. I, I'm not sure that was actually the case. Uh, what we read about in the book of Acts are particular dramatic episodes in the life of the early church rather than necessarily or ordinary everyday occurrences for every believer. And I mean, this particular instance, it really was a significant shift in the early days of the Christian movement as the gospel spread to other ethnic people groups. And for that momentous shift, th there was a somewhat dramatic revelation. But how open might we be to the idea that God could speak and direct us to a particular course of action. Well, let me offer some personal examples from, from my experience. Because there have been a, a, a handful of instances in, in my Christian journey where I'm actually quite convinced that I have been specifically directed or steered as to the course my life is to take. Now, I would hate for you to think that this happens to me every day because it simply doesn't. Uh, most of the time, my life is uh, a case of simply being kind of, you know, open for business as usual and uh, muddling through life and trying to live by the standards and the precepts of God's word and being faithful to the little things in life that are right in front of me. I, I don't need divine revelation, for instance, over the, the choice of toothpaste or deodorant that I'm going to buy from the supermarket. Now, the, the, the will of God for your life and mine has largely been objectively documented in the scriptures in terms of values and honesty and wisdom for living. And there are times, actually, you know what, I think God invites us to simply make wise choices. But I also want to leave room in my understanding of God for him to steer or direct the course that my life is going to take. The, the first experience that I can recall of receiving what I thought was a directive or a word from the Lord, I, I was 17 years of age as a young Christian. I'd recently completed my high schooling. We lived in the town of Whanganui when I was at high school. And uh, I had been selected for a special course in quantity surveying that was going to take place in Auckland. Out of 300 applicants, I was one of 15 who'd been interviewed and selected. However, a, a week before the course began, I, I had this overwhelming sense of conviction that God did not want me to attend this training. Now, it's difficult to actually put this into words, but I, I had this unmistakable feeling that, that God was saying it was not the course that my life was to take. I'd never experienced anything quite like this before, and I had to try and explain my sense of conviction to my parents uh, at the time, I didn't know what else to do, but I resolved that I was going to follow God's prompting. So I resigned from the course and I took an ordinary job in a warehouse. Well, I was waiting for the Lord to give me further instructions. And a few months later, on my 18th birthday, I moved to Wellington or just north of it. And a few weeks after that, I met Liz, who became my wife. And a few weeks after that, I became involved in Christian ministry with the organization Youth for Christ in the city of Wellington, which ultimately led me 
to the course that my life has taken over the last 43 years. One example. To, to give another example, in 1988, Liz and I were living in the town of Pukekohe. I was the pastor of the Baptist Church there, and we, we'd had a wonderful ministry with the church more than doubling in size, and we, we thought we'd probably be there forever. However, early in 1988, I, I began to have this unmistakable conviction that God wanted me to study and experience the issue of poverty in the world and where the gospel intersected with that. There's a whole backstory to this, but the thought simply would not go away. And in particular, I had a growing sense that God was saying that we were to go and see poverty, touch it, taste it for ourselves. I didn't really understand why, but cutting a long story short, in September 1988, Liz and I went for a three-week visit to Bangladesh and to Calcutta in India. Well, th this trip was many months in the planning, but it turned out that come the time that we were there, coincidentally, right, Bangladesh was caught in the grip of its worst flood in its recorded history. We saw that desperate country at its worst. We were in the city of Chanpur, and I was riding on a rickshaw with a, a missionary friend who was telling me about all that we were seeing. I wasn't really listening to him because I was talking to God, and I sensed that God was actually saying to me that what I was seeing was for a special purpose. I was to go home, resign, and come back to work in Bangladesh. And again, Cutting a long story short, that's basically what we did. But there was an interesting twist in our going. We were just about to leave for Bangladesh, and there was a combined church service in the town where we pastored, and one of the other pastors interviewed me as to our sense of call, and then he prayed for us. I was asked how long I thought that we were going to Bangladesh for. And I suggested that I thought it was going to be for about 10 or so years. Well, after the service, a man came up to me who I hardly knew, actually, and he placed a piece of paper in my hand and he said, read this when you get home. So I, I put the piece of paper in my pocket and later that night I looked on it. On it were written the following words. I believe the Lord is saying to you, you're not going for 10 years, but for around two years, after which the Lord has a new assignment for you. Well, at the time, I was you know, incensed by this. I dismissed this supposed prophetic word as utter nonsense, and I threw the piece of paper away. Over the next year or so, I, I forgot about it completely. Well, here's the thing. Interestingly, two and a half years later, after a whole variety of circumstances, sure enough, we were back in our home country of New Zealand. And there I was facing a new ministry assignment that had opened up for us. So, so what's the point that I'm trying to make in all of this? Well, I, I guess I want to invite us to believe in a God who still speaks and directs his servants. A dramatic revelation may not happen every day, and well, your experience will be different to mine, but I invite us to believe in God's capacity to speak to and to direct us. 
It's not God who's changed. Maybe it's actually us. I mean, why would the story of Peter's dramatic leading to the household of Cornelius have found its way into our Bibles? Might it be there as a challenge and an encouragement that we might also be used by God as Peter was? Now, I, I believe in the ability of the Holy Spirit to speak prophetically into our situation and to give us direct instructions. Sometimes that might be via an inner witness in our spirit or a deep personal conviction or some innate knowledge that we're to do a particular thing. Sometimes it may be a, a prophetic word that someone gives to us or we have a dream or a vision that we see. Maybe there's a verse of scripture that kind of leaps out of the page at us. But I also believe in the objectivity of the Holy Spirit. For when God gives revelation and direction to his people, it's always able to be examined and scrutinized and tested by others. One of the greatest safeguards that God has given us to prevent us being distracted by false revelations is the gift of Christian community. Now, we Christians, we're not independent islands. We're interdependent members of a network of relationships called the church. So if we have a, a sense that God is directing us in a particular direction, never be afraid to share that sense of revelation with others. In fact, I encourage us to do so with those whose counsel we trust. In fact, I would say be weary of those who claim a word from the Lord, but who are unwilling to allow it to be tested or verified. How did Paul put it in the letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians? He said, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Well, then the Apostle John said this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. He said, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In the passage that we've read today, a Roman centurion and his household were saved when the gospel began to spread beyond the Jewish race. It all happened because a servant of the Lord recognized the leading of the Spirit and followed that prompting. Well, what if God wanted to do something similar today? What if some of the thoughts or ideas that have passed through our mind or dreams or visions that we have seen in the past were in actual fact God trying to get our attention because he had an assignment for us to fulfill? Maybe in the past we dismissed it because our, our, our paradigm of God didn't include the possibility that God might want to use us. But not anymore. Because of what we've read in the book of Acts, we too are now open to his leading. Thanks for joining us this week online. Come join us on Sunday mornings too if you're in Hamilton. Find out more about Hamilton Central Baptist Church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz Join us again next week at Central Speaks.